Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Jonathan Putman's Lincoln and Speed series brings to life the young Abe Lincoln. He's a freshly minted lawyer on the Western frontier, solving murder and mayhem with the help of his own Dr. Watson in the form of his true life best friend, Joshua Speed. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And today, Jonathan talks about recreating the coming of age years of one of America's most revered presidents, and why he gave up a partnership in a prestigious New York law firm to pursue his writing. But before we talk to Jonathan, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Jonathan's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Jonathan. Hello there, Jonathan, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be part of the show. Thanks. Now, the beginning at the beginning, I always like to ask this first up. Was there a once-upon-a-time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if there was a catalyst for it, what was it? So, um, when I was in college... I uh, spent all my time, or virtually all my time, writing for the student newspaper and virtually none of my time uh, going to class. Uh, but I then, and, and I thought at the time I was going to become a writer of some sort. Uh, I ended up in law school. I ended up as a lawyer, and 20 years passed. Um, and I had a uh, very good career as a lawyer, but writing was always, the path not taken for me. And so a number of years ago, I was, um, you know, I had just turned 40. I had been a lawyer for almost two decades. And I asked myself if I wanted to be a lawyer, if I was sure I wanted to be a lawyer for the next two decades. And the answer was I wasn't sure. And there was always this, this path that I had not taken, and that was to become a writer. And so I decided that I wanted to give that a try. That's fantastic. Now, how did you move from that general desire to the very specific choice that you've taken to write a mystery series based around the young Abe Lincoln? That, that's a big jump for anyone to take. It is. So I, there was definitely an aha moment about that. Um, I always love history, and, um, so I, and I love reading historical fiction. And, you know, they say, write what you know, and I knew about being a lawyer and being a trial lawyer because that's what I had done professionally for 20 years. So uh, back, it was actually all the way back in 2006, uh, I was um, brainstorming with my sister about potential famous lawyers in history that I could base a historical fiction, historical mystery book on. Um, and my sister was a very good person to be brainstorming uh, about this with because she's an actual historian. She's the, uh, her name is Laura Putnam. She's the 
uh, well-known historian and the chair of the history department at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. So Laura and I were brainstorming about possible famous lawyers in history, either American history or world history, and we had gone through a number of them, and uh, uh, Abe Lincoln was uh, one obvious possibility. Uh, I think most students of history, certainly uh, all lawyers would know that he was a he was himself a very prolific lawyer before becoming a politician. And my sister said, oh, you should make the books told by his best friend. And I had never heard of Joshua Speed, who in real life was this well-born son of a wealthy Kentucky plantation owner who had uh, left his family, moved to the frontier, and uh, met the young Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois in 1837, and had ended up becoming best friends with the great man when, when both of them were in their 20s. So I had never heard of the young uh, uh, Speed, Joshua Speed. But as soon as I started looking into him, I said to myself, aha, I have my Watson, I have my Dr. Watson, I have the way to tell this story. And so it was four years from that conversation when I finally got up the nerve to uh, resigned from the law partnership that I had worked very hard to achieve, and another five years after that, that I actually sold and published my first book. But uh, that was the start of the journey. Man, that, that's and that's a very dedicated apprenticeship too. Before getting one book out, um, I really admire you. Yeah, that was a god gift, Joshua Speed, and and I don't think that he probably wasn't generally well known to Americans. I mean, out of interest, I've I looked in the indexes of several of the books that I've got here on the period, and his name does not register in the indexes. Yeah, he is, he is um, very obscure historically, um, undeservedly so in my opinion. I think in real life he had a very profound impact on the young Lincoln um, and is a pretty interesting historical character, but in a way that was perfect for my purposes. Um, because uh, Abraham Lincoln himself is so well known that I didn't think I could make him the center of these books. Like, I couldn't, you know, people wouldn't believe if I put Lincoln's life in jeopardy because they know Lincoln doesn't die in 1837. They know he becomes president. And people would, there are also other, there's a whole lot of things that I don't think readers would except about Lincoln, especially if I'm writing as I want to, you know, realistic historical fiction, something that, you know, gives you a sense of what it would actually have been like to be there. So, for example, I don't think readers would accept Lincoln as a lawyer defending an obviously guilty client, because I think people have this image of Lincoln as standing for probity and truth and uh, justice. And so I think while he's a very interesting historical figure, and, and I think also a very interesting figure in historical fiction, uh, I didn't think that I could make him the, the centerpiece alone of a historical mystery series. But nobody knows Speed. Nobody knows what, who Speed is or when he lived, and no one has a stake in Speed. So mm-hmm. by making Speed sort of the character in the foreground and sort of the protagonist 1A, I could move Lincoln slightly to the background, make him sort of the 1B character, 
and thereby tell that story in a way that's interesting and exciting for the readers uh, and makes use of the historical figures without being sort of stuck with them. Yes, and also, I mean, I, I gather also in the third book, you mentioned that um, Lincoln was really assailed by depression, and you have a, a scene where Speed hides knives and unloads his gun. That probably is much better told from the point of view of a, of a sidekick like Speed than to have Lincoln um, sort of um, monologuing on it, isn't it? <clears throat> well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think I, I think one thing that people enjoy about the books is to get a close look at the young Lincoln and, again, as you say, short of a monologue, you couldn't really have Lincoln telling that story. But when I, so my speed is the first person narrator of the books. So the, the, the journey that I'm hoping to take readers on is the following. What would it be like to be the, the best friend of the most famous person in American history, to be sitting across the table from them at the Globe Tavern, to be uh, sharing a room with them every night, to be sitting in the front row of the courtroom as that person stands up uh, and argues for the life of his client, pleads for the life of his client, with the big um, proviso, the big circumstance, that it, your best friend is the most famous person in American history, but no one knows it yet, right? These books are yeah. set, and they're both in their 20s. They're both young men trying to make it on the frontier. We know the history. It's impossible, certainly, for an American audience, I would think for any English-speaking audience, to look at the Abraham Lincoln character and not know what's going to happen to him. But, of course, the characters don't know that history, and that's really crucial to the way I'm telling the story. I, you know, I, I want you, I, I, as much as possible, I want you to forget about that history, at least when I'm telling you the story, forget about what happens, you know, later on in these characters' lives, and just focus on the, in the time period that I'm telling the story. They're two unmarried men trying to make their way. They don't know what the world holds for them. They're living in a wild and untamed place on the American frontier. There are uncertainties about life around them. They have uncertainties about their own lives. And it's sort of a moment of becoming, a moment of discovery, where they are not burdened with the knowledge of what comes next. And as much as possible in telling the stories, I try to recreate that sense of potential, that sense of becomingness. Uh, in some ways, it's sort of a coming-of-age story that I try to tell. Sure. Now, um when you started, did you have a series in mind? Um, sort of. I mean, I definitely had in mind that there that um, I, I would base the actual murder mysteries on, um, or base the murder mysteries on actual cases that Lincoln handled in his legal career, and each of the books is more or less um, accurately based on actual cases that he handled, some more directly than others. And he was a very prolific lawyer. He handled something like 5,000 cases in his career. So I knew that if I could make the format and the concept work, there would then be lots of individual mystery stories that I could tell in as, you know, within that format. Sure. And that, but that leads on to the interesting thought of have you given a thought to how long you're going to prolong it? I mean, you're going to stick with that 
while they're still young, pre-presidential period, are you? Yes. So they lived together. In real life, they lived together for four years, from 1837 to 1841. They shared a room uh, in the um, in the second story. Speed was a, a shopkeeper in Springfield. He owned a general store. And like many uh, storekeepers, he lived. He literally lived above his store. So there was a narrow second floor room above the Speed store where, where Speed lived or where slept at night. And Lincoln shared living quarters with Speed for four years, again, 1837 to 1841. And each of my books thus far, um, the third one, Final Resting Place, just came out last month, has been set during this four-year window. And I would envision that each of the successive books will be as well. Again, to me, the sort of integral to the concept of what I have is this notion that they're both young men, their future lies ahead of them, and they're trying to, you know, we, we get to witness them trying to make that future a step at a time. Sure, because we have the benefit of hindsight. I'm, I'm curious as to whether, I think you say they did remain good friends for the rest of their lives. How did it go during the Civil War? Because Speed's father was a slave owner with about 60 slaves, wasn't he? So what side did Speed take in the Civil War, and did they manage to remain friends during that very short period? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's actually a very interesting issue. So they lived together for four years. They then, um, Lincoln stayed in Springfield and Speed moved back to Louisville, Kentucky, where he was from. And they each got married uh, shortly thereafter. So they were then married and living about 250 miles apart. And obviously there was no telephone, no email, so it was hard to communicate. Uh, you could just write letters. And I think at the time, at least men were not all that inclined to write personal letters back and forth. So um, they did stay in touch, not that well. They frequently in their letters would argue about slavery because Lincoln obviously um, was very much opposed to slavery and was becoming uh, more and more involved in the movement to limit or end slavery. And Speed uh, grew up in a slave-owning family. Speed later in his life himself owned slaves. He did not, of course, when he lived in Illinois with Lincoln because Illinois was a free state, but Speed later in his life did own slaves. And they argued quite um, pointedly in some of their correspondence as the nation got closer to civil war over the issue on the issue of slavery. Um, uh, so then Lincoln runs for president, opposing slavery, of course. Speed uh, voted for one of Lincoln's opponents. It's hard to imagine being best friends with someone, sharing a room with them for four years, and then they run for president and you vote against them. But Speed voted against Lincoln for slavery, uh, voted against Lincoln for president, but remained very cordial with him. And one of the things I found in my research in the Library of Congress was a letter that Speed wrote Lincoln immediately after it had become known that Lincoln had actually won the election, had won the presidency, where Speed very graciously congratulates Lincoln, tells him that, you know, he, he's not surprised that he won, and he is happy that the nation is going to be in his hands, uh, despite their political differences. And then Speed actually becomes a significant advisor to President Lincoln for all of their disagreements. Um, 
you know, nowadays we sort of in the U.S. think that the Civil War was inevitable, that especially once Lincoln was elected, the South was going to succeed and there was going to be a war. But Lincoln very much tried to head that off, and he wanted to create a cabinet, a group of advisors, who were balanced between free states and slave states. So shortly after he was elected president, uh, Lincoln called Speed to join him uh, at a hotel in Chicago and offered Speed the position of Secretary of the Treasury. Speed had, in the intervening time, uh, gone from being a mere shopkeeper to being a very successful businessman, and he'd been a bank president, so it was not crazy to think that he could be Secretary of the Treasury. In any event, Lincoln offered him that position, but Speed turned it down. Um, nonetheless, Speed ended up as a important um, unofficial advisor to Lincoln during his presidency and became quite a supporter of Lincoln's during his presidency. And so I presume that means, did he also take the Union side in the war? Well, so, the, the, it's, again, a very interesting situation. So Kentucky was what's called a border state. It was a slave state, but it did not secede from the Union. It, it would mm -hmm. remain sort of neutral in the Civil War. Yeah. And it was a very important state. Lincoln is supposed to have said early in the war, I hope to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky on my side. Yeah. And Speed, as a um, prominent private citizen in Kentucky, ended up as Lincoln's personal agent in Kentucky trying to keep the state from seceding and trying to um, bolster the Union forces, because there were both Union forces and Confederate forces in Kentucky. They were both sides were trying to lobby the state legislature to formally declare for one side or the other. And Speed, despite the fact that he, you know, was originally opposed to um, uh, Lincoln and, and, and opposed to Lincoln's political position, Speed ended up working very closely with the Union forces in Kentucky to try to uh, run guns to them, run ammunition to them, uh, and generally um, uh, keep them from seceding. W one story that I discovered in some old Speed family memoirs that I came across in doing my research is pretty amazing. So there was a Union general named Sherman, William Sherman, who later on in the war became very famous, um, who was at the time in 1861, right as the war was starting, Responsible, the official general of the Union of the, the United States, responsible for holding Kentucky. And he couldn't get enough material. He couldn't get enough guns or enough men to defend Kentucky. He kept sending letters to the president in Washington. I need more men. I need more, more guns. And they were ignored. So one day, General Sherman ran across Speed in Louisville, heard that Speed was friends with the president, and explained his plight, and Speed said, well, give me a list of what you need. So General Sherman wrote out a list of what he needed. Uh, Speed got on the next train, traveled to Washington, and returned two or three weeks later with a signed order from President Lincoln granting General Sherman everything he wanted. Uh, <laughs> General Sherman was stunned. He said to Speed, how is it, sir, that you, a private citizen, can get 
the attention of the chief executive where I, his general, should not, cannot, I should resign my command and turn it over to you. And Speed looked him in the eye and said, General, your only mistake was not asking for more. <laughs> so do you think that history would view Lincoln differently if his life had not been violently cut short? Is there a, a tendency for us to make a kind of iconic figure out of a man who, you know, suffered that fate? And particularly the timing yeah. of it right at the end of the war. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, maybe. I, I, I think Lincoln's achievements are um, indelible in American history. He ended slavery, which was the, you know, great moral stain of the founding of America. You know, a lot of people would refer to it as the original sin of America. Yes. And he kept the union together, and he did those things. He achieved those things. You know, I, I contrast it to President Kennedy, who was elected exactly 100 years after Lincoln and also assassinated, you know, in the prime of his life. Yes. And I think, you know, people sometimes compare the two presidents, and President Kennedy in general is much loved and much remembered in America. But, you know, his legacy is more potential. Like, what could he have done had he lived? Whereas yeah. Lincoln actually did things. And I don't mean to that Kennedy didn't. Kennedy also did things. But Lincoln achieved his greatest achievements. And so I don't know that his legacy would have been that much different if he had, you know, lived another 30 years because he still would have, again, freed the slaves and, and saved the Union. And those are two things that, you know... America would be a vastly different country today if he hadn't done that. Certainly, yeah. Look, if readers wanted to visit Abraham Lincoln's sites in the U.S., so they're reading their book, your books, and they think, oh, gosh, that would be interesting, are there places that you would uh, recommend they go? I mean, we all know about the Lincoln Memorial, but um, the lesser-known places, I see there is something called the Kentucky Heritage Trail. Is that worth taking a look at? Yeah, I mean, the two that I would recommend most are um, there's a state historical site in New Salem, Illinois. New Salem is a town about 30 miles down the river from Springfield where the young Lincoln lived in the early 1830s. And in my most recent novel, Final Resting Place, a lot of events that took place in Lincoln's time living in New Salem come rushing back at him. It was a difficult time in Lincoln's life, but an interesting time, and they have their a recreated historical village. They've recreated what the town would have looked like at the time of um, Lincoln living there, and it's very interesting. Oh, that the, other place great. I yeah. the other place I would definitely recommend is Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln lived from 1837 until he became president. Uh, Spring, uh, New Salem basically doesn't exist anymore. It's only this historical site. Springfield remains the state capital of Illinois, so it's an actual, you know, ongoing, bustling city. But there are a, a, a wealth of Lincoln sites there because Lincoln spent, you know, two and a half decades living there. So there's his presidential library museum there, which is very much worth going to. The house that he lived in for 20 years is a is a uh, National Park Service property that you can visit, which is very interesting. 
Um, you could walk around the square and see all of the places that Lincoln walked, uh, which are all the places that I recreated in my books. Unfortunately, you cannot visit the store where Lincoln and Speed met and where Lincoln and Speed lived together because that was long ago torn down. But you can visit the spot where the store was, and there are a lot of plaques all around downtown Springfield with information about Lincoln's life and times and, you know, the places that Lincoln frequented in Springfield and the people the people he dealt with there. Uh, um, I guess your readers obviously are probably um, histor- historical fans, but what do they tell you they like best about the series? You don't have to be mad about history to enjoy the series. They are good yarns with interesting characters, regardless of who they were in real life. So what do people tell you they like about the series? So in addition to Lincoln and Speed, there's a third major character, Martha Speed, who is Joshua Speed's younger sister. Now, I've taken some liberties with the history here. Joshua Speed did have a younger sister named Martha, but very little is known about her in history. Uh, For my dramatic purposes, I have moved her to Springfield and set her up as sort of the precocious, kid sister of, of Speed, uh, and she does a lot of the mystery solving and her tenaciousness and her intuition um, are, are, are a great help to Lincoln and Speed as they are forced to solve the, the mysteries that arise in Lincoln's law practice. Invariably, people tell me that Martha is their favorite character, and uh, although I have basically completely made up her personality because, again, almost nothing is known about the actual Martha Speed. I have modeled her on a number of um, independent young women at the time. It was very hard to be an uh, independent young woman at that time in American history because women had very few rights, um, but there were some who managed, nonetheless, to make a real mark on their time and on their society, and I've, I've modeled Martha Speed on them. Oh, that's fabulous. Yes, I must say, I'm enjoying Martha. She, she definitely adds a lift to um, the whole book. Now, moving on more generally, perhaps away from the specific books, to your wider writing career, what has, is there one thing that you've done more than any other that's been the secret to your success as an author, as distinct from being a lawyer? Um, I I think it's persistence um, and refusing to take no for an answer. I was actually, just before we started talking, talking to a young, aspiring writer who I know, and I was recounting for her how I got published. And um, people kept telling me no, as I think it happens with many beginning writers when they start, and I kept not taking no for an answer. Um, so I have an agent. My agent currently is a, is, my agent is a man who's a partner at a very large uh, New York literary agency who uh, told me no for about two years before he finally agreed to be my agent. And my publisher, similarly, the man who publishes me, is a uh, experienced, very experienced New York publisher who told me no for about two years as well before he finally agreed to publish me. So um, now all the law, I mean, I, I, all the while I was writing, continuing to write and continue, continuing to get better at my craft, but they said no, and I said, okay, but I, I hear you saying that I 
keep working at this, you might be interested. And they would say, yeah, you've got to keep working at it, but we might be interested. And I kept working and kept going back to them, and eventually I got both of them to say yes. Yeah, that's great. That really is. And uh, it's surprising how many authors I speak to, that's exactly what they say, persistence is what you need to do. So look, turning to Jonathan as a reader, because this uh, show is about the joys of binge reading, um, you probably have been a mystery reader in the past if you've chosen to write mysteries. Tell us a little bit about the sort of reading you do for your own leisure and enjoyment. Yeah, I, I I love reading, no surprise. Um, and I read, uh, uh, you know, pretty widely. Um, if I think of modern-day um, mystery writers, um, and in particular historical mystery writers, a couple that come to mind that I, I read their work, works regularly and really enjoy would be um, David Liss, who writes a, a, a very wide range of historical uh, historical thrillers that I really enjoy. Alex Grecian, who writes the um, Scotland Yard Murder Squad books and who I've uh, been uh, very privileged to meet and get to know personally, and he's a great guy. And as well, a woman named Susanna Calkins, who writes uh, period mysteries set in England that I think are fantastic. Um, a little bit further back in time, um, Barry Unsworth, a British uh, writer, um, wrote a book called Sacred Hunger, which won the um, Booker Prize in England, I think back in the 1990s, that is probably my the favorite historical novel that I've ever written, just uh, ever read, rather, just a fantastic book, actually about the slave trade between England and America. Sacred oh. Hunger by Barry Unger. Sacred, I'm sorry, Sacred Hunger by Barry Unsworth. I, I would recommend that, um, you know, more highly than anything. Oh, that sounds fabulous, Jonathan. Um, it was David List, is that L-I-S-T? I'm sorry, List, L-I-S-S. Oh, L-I-S-S. Okay, great, thank you. I haven't seen him, so I must have, have a look for those. Um, Super. I, I also read all... Sorry, sorry. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, you also read, do tell us, I'd love to hear this. Oh, I also read a lot of narrative nonfiction. Um, I, I love the Eric Larson books, uh, Dead Wake, which is about the seeking of Lusitania and In the Garden of Beasts, which is about um, the American ambassador to Nazi Germany. Um, I, I read a great book recently called The Black Count by Tom Reese about a um, black uh, general in Napoleon's army, which is a fascinating book. Mm. And I read another book that really sticks out that I've read in the last year uh, is a, um, a, uh, a biography of the author Julia Ward Howe, who is an American author in the 19th century. She's probably best known for writing a patriotic song called The Battle Hymn of the Republic, which is a very one of the best-known American patriotic songs, but she did a lot more writing. Her name is Julia Ward Howe, and there's a biography of her called The Civil Wars of Julia Ward Howe by a woman named Elaine Showalter, which uh, I, I I loved that book. It was a great book. Oh, that's and, and, and yeah. I, I'll, add, I'll add a little bit of a model for my Martha Speed character, because it, it was a great Julia Ward Howe, was a, a really interesting example of an actual woman who lived in the 19th century at a time when it was 
you know, very hard for women to do anything other than uh, tend to their house and have babies and tend to their children. And she um, had an amazing independent career. Oh, that, yeah, that sounds inspirational. Look, we're running out of time, so circling from the beginning and looking back over your time as a writer, at this stage, if you were doing it all again, is there anything you would do differently, or do you feel that really it's all happened as it should have done? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to tempt fate by changing anything. I mean, it took me. I think I said it took me four years after I had the idea of the book series to get up my nerve to quit my law firm job and uh, start writing. So, you know, maybe I would say to get up my, I would tell my, you know, earlier self to get up my nerve a little bit quicker, but I didn't. And then it took me five years of writing once I did quit my law firm job before I sold my first book to a publisher. But again, I, you know, I was learning a heck of a lot about the writing process and about becoming a writer and the craft of writing during those five years, and I doubt there's any way that I could have short-circuited that. So I wouldn't change anything about those years either. Sure. And so what is next for Jonathan, the writer? Well, more uh, historical mysteries, historical thrillers. I, I, I love the format of a historical fiction to you know, really make the history come alive to, in the case of the Lincoln and Speed Mysteries, give you this feeling of what it would have been like to be inside this friendship of these two men, including Martha Speed, these three young people on the frontier trying to make their way in a very difficult environment, a very uncertain environment, but, um, uh, you know, a, a moment both in their own lives and in American history that was full, that filled with promise and potential. Um, and so uh, there are currently three Lincoln and Speed books out and available, you know, on sale everywhere books are sold. The most recent one is um, Final Resting Place, which came out uh, last month. I've uh, just did a came back from an a, a extensive book tour where I had great crowds really excited about the reception I've got for that book. And I'm in the middle of finishing up the fourth book of the Lincoln and Speed series. It's going to be called A House Divided, and that will come out next summer, the summer of 2019. That's fantastic. And then are you thinking about book five? Um, I'm definitely thinking about the next book after A House Divided. I guess I'd say I haven't decided yet if that will be another Lincoln and Speed book or if I'll strike off into another um historical time period, uh, but I, I'm for sure it will be more historical fiction, um, uh, you know, taking both a combination of uh, famous people from history and uh, uh, obscure people from history, but nonetheless interesting people, and uh, adding to that my own invention and trying to, trying to add, add it all together and tell a really interesting, involving, exciting tale. And what other periods uh, attract you? Have you got any favorite period? Um, I would say anything before the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> I, I think the, uh, the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Um, you know, in uh, so my books are set in the 1830s, which in some ways is not, I mean, it's a long time ago, but parts of Lincoln and Speed's lives in, in that time period are very recognizable to us. 
and parts are very foreign to us. So, for example, the railroad, sort of the, you know, the uh, embodiment of 19th century progress in the world, the railroad was not, had not reached Springfield in the 1830s and, in fact, would not reach it for the 18, until the 1850s, so nearly 20 years later. So if you wanted yourself to get in or out of Springfield in Lincoln Speed's time, or you wanted information to get in and out of Springfield, you know, you could only go as fast as a horse could take you. And that sort of thing, you know, obviously very much shapes my mystery stories because people can only move as fast as horses could take them and information can only move as fast as horses can take them. Yes. Yeah, sure. Well, Jonathan, look, it's been great talking to you. Where can readers find you online? So my website is my full name with my middle initial, so www.jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, F as in Frank, Putnam.com. So www.jonathanfputnam.com. I'm also on uh, Facebook as Jonathan F. Putnam and on Instagram and Twitter, and I love to connect with readers, any of those places. I, I respond to all my reader email. If you go to my website, there's a um, you know, a, a, an email address that you can connect with me. Or if you just Google Jonathan Putnam, Lincoln and Speed Mysteries, all of that will come up as well. Um, and I'm always thrilled to connect with re- uh, readers and hear what they have to say. Look, that's wonderful. Thank you so, so much. We'll have a great deal of pleasure in posting this online and linking to your site and um, hope that a lot of other people find you as a result. Thank you so much. That's great. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, and it's great to talk to you today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.